So we are starting a new series uh, in the Psalms this evening, and um, we're not going to spend three years in the Psalms, and so we're not going to look at all of them, um, but we're going to look at um, the best of, or at least Ben's favorite of, and uh, the, the Psalms themselves are a best of all of the songs of Israel, so um, you can think of it kind of like a top 40 list or a top 150 list of all of the thousands of songs that Israelites must have composed over all of the many, many decades and centuries and even millennia that they existed. Uh, songs, their poems, some probably were sung, some were chanted um, responsively in the synagogue, um, in the temple. Some were just individual prayers of lament. And a huge part of Jewish culture, even to this day, is singing. And uh, that singing through the, the church as Judaism kind of uh, went viral or international and then you had the church and really it's one of the great gifts of the church and uh, Israel to the world is the singing that we have. It's not as much uh, part of other religious traditions but within the Judeo-Christian tradition singing is a huge part of what we do which is both uh, a cappella, um, instrumental singing, the Psalms encourage uh, the guitar, they encourage the drum, they encourage the trumpet. You have uh, responsive singing, you have solos, you have harmony, you have melody, you have uh, synagogue singing, temple singing, singing in the home, and you have um, Moses, probably in 1500 uh, BC or so, composed Psalm 90 about, uh, oh God, our help in ages past. Then you have David in about 1000 BC, 500 years later, giving thanks and praise to God for his great forgiveness in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your great compassion. And then 500 years after that, you have the exiles weeping in Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon we wept. And so throughout the whole history of Israel, these songs, uh, you have songs about justice uh, that are kind of hard for us to hear. Psalm 3, you break the teeth of the wicked. You have psalms about God's mercy, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You have psalms about lament, Psalm 88 ends with darkness is my closest friend. And you have psalms of joy, Psalm 98 says let the sea roar and all that fills it. And so the psalms have been compared to like a temple, a musical temple to God. And if if the psalms are a musical temple, then Psalm 1 is like the arched gateway the entrance into the temple, which is why the person who compiled the psalms put it at the very beginning, because the, the first psalm kind of swings uh, open into this whole world of fellowship with God. And that's what all the psalms are. They all imply an intimacy with God. They make no sense apart from intimacy with God. One commentator, uh, Trimper Longman, says that to enter the world of the psalms, quote, presumes an intimacy with God that only the righteous can experience, which is why it's talking about Uh, the blessedness of the righteous person. And really, Psalm 1 kind of is is a dividing line between people who are indifferent to God uh, or even who mock God, who have no interest in God, and then those uh, who delight in God, who meditate on God. So it's kind of painting with a broad brush intentionally. There's some hyperbole to it. And yet, still, it's trying to divide uh, two ways of life. And, you know, sometimes each one of us is living in one or the other way, but on the one hand, you have uh, the way of perishing. <clears throat> that's the main word that's used for the one way without any attachment or concern uh, for God. And the, the other way is the way of blessedness, which is kind of the opposite of perishing. 
It's a way of fruitfulness. It's, it's a way of flourishing and thriving. And so I want to contrast those two ways. I'll start with the perishing. <clears throat> and it says in verse 1, Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And you notice there that the verbs are all active. And so this is a, uh, this is not a photograph. This is a, uh, this is a video of what's happening. Uh, walking, standing, sitting is um, activity. And then also notice that all these are negations. Not walking this way, nor standing that way, nor sitting that way. So perishing is this kind of live action um, implosion. It's, uh, it's like a decay. I thought of the analogy of a time-lapse photograph of a peach. You leave a peach out on a counter for, you know, weeks. You'll see it uh, begin to decay. It'll go soft, then it turns kind of black, then it gets moldy and rotten. And eventually it actually loses, it loses mass. It just begins to um, crumble in on itself. And that's, that's what perishing is. It's an analogy to, uh, to living things. And so in the promised land, uh, Deuteronomy says that Israel would begin to perish if they ignored God. That's the word that's used there. Deuteronomy eleven seventeen. God says, when I, when I bring you into the promised land, if you ignore me, there will be no rain, there will be no fruit, and you will perish. And so that's what, again, perishing means. It's, uh, it's like a brush fire that passes over a forest and leaves nothing. You may have seen that before. Jeremiah 9.12 says, The land perishes, it is burned like wilderness. And then David in Psalm 37 compares it to smoke that vanishes. David says the wicked will perish, they will vanish like smoke. And then in Psalm 68, it's compared to wax melting before a fire. And so the wicked will perish in God's presence. Perish is actually the word that is most used in Scripture for a person that's kind of decaying. I mean, the word hell is not used that often in the Bible. A much more common uh, word is, is this idea of, uh, of decay or losing life. It's a process of losing life. And so in John 3.16, there's a very famous verse about Jesus coming to prevent all perishing, which is the opposite of eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We usually concentrate on the everlasting life part, but the negation of that is this idea that humans even now can be perishing. 2 Peter 3.9 says God is patient and God does not wish that anyone would perish, but all would come to repentance. And so repentance is the opposite of perishing or it turns the perishing around. It brings in life. Perishing is the opposite of verse 3, which is a tree planted by streams of water, because perishing is drying up. It's, uh, it's, I've got these window boxes, and I've got these petunias, and if any petunia wanted to be especially independent or feel like they needed to break out of the confines of Ben Milner's flower box, and they begin to walk away from there and move into the dry ground, perishing is what would happen to that Petunia, as it begins to be disconnected from uh, soil that has nutrients in it and that has water in it. And you see the progression in verse 1. It's from walking to standing to sitting. 
And so if you notice that it's less and less mobile. At first, you're just walking in the council. And so you're, you're still moving in and out of the company of, this, of the wicked. Um, there's still activity. But then next, you're standing in the way of sinners. And so you're not so much in and out. You're kind of in the circle now. These people have no interest in God. And then finally, it says you're sitting in the seat of scoffers. And so mocking God with other people that are very comfortable doing so. No movement in and out. Now that's your community. Now you have identified yourself with these people. And so in a way you can think of perishing as being uh, more and more satisfied with life uh, completely independent of God. More and more used to this world, as Pink Floyd might say, more and more comfortably numb. You're okay with being apart from God. And it doesn't even feel bad anymore. Perishing is like seeking uh, deeper and deeper into a huge recliner. It can feel really good, like a huge plush leather recliner where you're increasingly embedded and satisfied and immobile. You've got the footrest up. You've got your electric controls with like 5,000 buttons. You have a 110-inch screen. You've got your PS4, your Apple TV, your Netflix, your Amazon Prime. Amazon's delivering food to you. That's perishing. You have everything you need and no God. There's a band uh, that is no longer so famous, but uh, at, in, the, in their day, they were, the great, they were the greatest band, I think. Radiohead, British band. And uh, their best album, uh, without any doubt, is OK Computer. I'm hearing no, no response, so I'll, I'll keep going. Uh, Fitter Happier is the weirdest song that they ever wrote, I think. And it's, it's, uh, it's like a computer that's saying these things, as there's this weird background music. I encourage you to listen to it. Fitter and happier. And <clears throat> here's some of the lyrics. Uh, comfortable, not drinking too much. Regular exercise at the gym three days a week. Getting on better with your associate employee contemporaries. At ease, eating well. No more microwave dinners. No more saturated fat. A patient better driver. A safer car. Baby smiling in the back seat. Sleeping well. No bad dreams. No paranoia. Careful to all animals, never washing spiders down the drain, but fitter, healthier, more productive. A pig in a cage on antibiotics. And I think that's a great depiction of the way that uh, a person could just get so comfortable here and be perishing. Um, at the end, you know, you don't expect that conclusion, but uh, just completely satisfied. Uh, kind of like uh, in Brave New World, Aldous Huxley's vision of a world where people have, they're taking this drug, Soma, and it just makes them completely content. Notice the metaphor of, of chaff. It's probably something that very few of us know what, what chaff is. Uh, maybe a tumbleweed is like the, the closest thing to it. But in verse 4, uh, God compares um, the perishing to chaff that the wind drives away. And I think the closest analogy to to chaff, uh, other than just the tumbleweed, is a peanut shell because the chaff is the outer uh, husk of uh, a seed of wheat. And so imagine this almost like weightless, dry husk of a peanut shell, and it has absolutely no stability at all. That's the point in the metaphor. There's no ballast to it. There's no resistance. And so the slightest wind comes along, and the peanut shells go everywhere. The chaff is just blown backwards and forward by every wind of change. There's no resistance to 
change. There's nothing deep down inside. So imagine you're in a boat made of chaff, like a boat made of peanut shells. And, you know, you're gliding along peacefully uh, and you're making good money. Your, your grades are good. Your body is healthy. You've got friends who like you. Your spouse still likes you. Your children are well-adjusted and everything seems fine. But then uh, your car breaks down and the, 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 there's a little bit of a wind. And so you begin to turn a little bit, your boat of chaff. And then the dinner gets burned that night. The bread, especially that's always the bread. The bread is burned, and so you're leaning a little more. And then uh, your child, just after that, has a meltdown. And now you're beginning to list kind of dangerously. You break your finger, the ship's taking in water, and then the next day you lose your job. And pretty, you're sinking now. Because, you know, a boat such as that, there's no weightiness to it. Um, there's nothing to anchor you and keep you stable when uh, the judgment comes. It's like the analogy that Christ made of a person who builds their house on a rock versus on sand. And the wind comes, the judgment comes, and the perishing cannot stand, verse 5. The wind comes, and there's nothing stable there. It was all based on circumstance. All the emotion, all the well-being is based on circumstance. And that's perishing. No root system, superficial, shallow. That's what the psalmist says is perishing. And then, praise God, there's, a, there's another way of life that the psalmist describes as um, blessedness. And it's a little bit deeper than happiness. Um, it, it, is, it is definitely happiness, but it's, it's a deeper happiness that goes down into um, the eternal, you might say. It's a, it's a happiness that's weighty. It's a heavy happiness. And the whole thing begins with that word. Blessed is the one uh, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So it's not conforming to this world. That's why there's these three negations. It's, it's, it's not being comfortable here. You know, to be truly conformist is to not be comfortable in the world, according to Psalm 1. It's being rooted uh, in something deeper than the world. That's why it's a, compared to a tree planted by streams of water in verse 3. It's a, it's a tree that's unusual. I've seen these. They don't, you don't see them often. But if you, if you drive past a river, every now and then you'll see a tree. And the actual roots of the tree go down into the river. And you know that um, when a tree like that is going, even if it's a great big drought, that tree will continue to be green. It's drawing on something that the other trees around cannot draw on. So they might be brown and dying and decayed, and yet this tree is going to be green, which is why the psalmist says its leaf will not wither. Even in the dry season, the leaf of this tree will not wither. And in the Middle East, if they're rare today, in the ancient Middle East, they would have been rarer. Very few of these trees. And uh, the psalmist is saying that a, a blessed person, a truly deeply happy person, is like a tree with roots down deep. And so its, its leaf does not wither. The nourishment of the other trees is very thin and very circumstantial, but the nourishment of this tree goes way down deep. It's not circumstantial. It's inexhaustible. It's always drawing on something outside of itself, deeper than itself, down beneath itself. And therefore, in verse 3, in all that the blessed one does, he prospers. You've got to be careful about that prosperity word because that can get you into the prosperity gospel 
which would not be what this is saying at all. It doesn't mean you're going to be wealthy or not feel pain or not get sick. Um, It means that even if there is pain, even if there is tragedy, which is assumed by the psalmist, the tragedy is assumed with the judgment idea and the perishing idea. There is tragedy. But what is different about this, this prosperity is that there is something in grief that is sustaining this person. They're not naive about tragedy. They don't pretend everything's okay. They're not Pollyanna. They know there's grief. They feel the scorching heat. But there's this deeper prospering. And verse 2 gives the key to the whole thing. Why do they prosper? Why does their leaf not wither? Why do they have roots deep down under the ground? And the answer that it gives is that they, their mind is different. It's a mindset, which I think psychologists are more and more coming to see is deeply important to human well-being, the mindset. In fact, they say that the mind is plastic enough that by thinking certain thoughts again and again and again, you can change the actual structure, physical structure of the brain. And so it's fascinating to me that in verse 2, the, the prospering, the blessed, they're thinking. They're thinking differently. Day and night. So it's a lot of thinking. In the daytime, in the evening, there's a certain way of meditation and thinking. And the meditation leads to delight. So it's both mental and it's emotional. They're delighted in the law of God. They're meditating on it day and night. And so one thing that's saying is that this can happen anytime and anywhere. It's not circumstantial. Uh, On December 24th, which is my favorite day of the year, and on August 27th, which is the first day of school this year, either one, it's going to be the same thing. Meditation, delight in God. If If you think certain things, if your mind on certain things, it creates emotion. Emotion comes from cognition and thinking and processing. And so this is saying that in a resort or in a jail cell, um, you can be meditating. And you can have that root system deep down under the earth. Think about Paul and Silas. If you know the story of Paul and Silas in the book of Acts, there was a blessedness to them that was very stout and very changeless and could endure. And in Acts 16.20, it says that the people of Philippi threw them um, into prison, threw Paul and Silas into prison. The reason they threw them into prison is because Paul and Silas were, were creating a, an uproar. It says they threw the city into a turmoil. Now, how do they do that? Well, they, they, there was a, a young woman who was being used as a slave uh, because she had powers of divination. Paul and Silas uh, came and liberated her, and because of that, they were thrown in prison because they were not conforming to the world. They were, they were bucking the system. And so the authorities did not like that. And we read in verse 21, they placed them in the innermost cell of the prison. The innermost cell had been pitch black, uh, probably moldy and putrid and maggot written and probably no food in there or disgusting food. And their feet were fastened in stocks. That's a, that's a bad place. I, I don't think any of us have probably been in a place like that. Maybe, but probably not. And yet in that place... Uh, the way they reacted was this. At midnight, they were found to be praying and singing hymns to God. Now, what do you think they were praying and singing? Probably the Psalms. They probably memorized the Psalms. So here they are, meditating on the law of God, delighting in God, singing. And it's so moving and profound that in verse 23, it says, The other prisoners, these are hardened criminals. 
the writer of Acts notes that the other prisoners were listening to them. And then later on that night, even the jailer, the, the one who ran the cell, this would have been a hardened, this, this would have been a tough guy. Uh, he would have been no fool. He would not have been uh, soft-hearted or sentimental. And it says that even he became a believer. Partly as a result of seeing the blessedness of Paul and Silas. And so, you know, how do you sing a hymn in a place like that? And you might be saying, well, my life feels like that too. Well, how do you sing a hymn in a place like that? You've got to turn your mind and meditate in a different way. And your thinking's got to change. There has to be deep roots of mental toughness that can wear past a storm like that. Uh, a, A stream underneath the prison that Paul and Silas were in. And, you know, again, without that, uh, without that, you're going to be just tossed back and forth here and there by every circumstance that comes your way. The only way to really resist uh, is by this kind of meditation. I would say, uh, to use another analogy, we, um, we're all born just carried downstream by a current of conformity to whatever culture we're in, uh, comfortably numb and fitter and happier and more productive and just going right down... Uh, towards the ocean, but some people uh, sometimes begin to turn around and swim back up against the current. And that's what blessedness is. It's like a salmon. If you know about the salmon, the salmon are born in freshwater lakes, and then they go down into the ocean, and, and they live most of their life in the ocean. And then they, um, they come back up at some point, at least some of them, and they swim upstream to find their true home. And they're fighting the current a whole way. And that's really what's going on here with uh, walking not in the counsel of the wicked, nor standing in the way of sinners, nor sitting in the seat of the scoffers. That's a hard activity. That kind of meditation, you've got to fight what is around you. Blessedness is always countercultural. You know, our culture says to seek happiness. And I would say if you seek happiness, you're not going to get happiness. The Psalms would say, uh, seek God. And that will make you happy. Seek something deeper than happiness. And then you'll become happy. But you've got to, again, you've got to fight. Because in a world of uh, constant, you know, ESPN, which is just starting, by the way, for me. You know, the football season's coming on and it's starting to get really tough. But maybe NPR, CNN, Bloomberg, whatever, is constantly on your mind. You've got to really make an effort. You've got to kind of detach, unplug for some time in a day. If you don't do that, you're just going to be carried along. And filling your mind with God and delighting in God's law, instead of clicking on your Amazon app or your Instagram app, I had to move my Amazon app to another page because it was, it was just being clicked on way too much. 7% of Americans, I heard, um, based on a study by, I believe it was Barna, uh, 7% of Americans have regular spiritual conversations. What is a regular spiritual conversation? I was hoping it would be like every third day. It's once a month. 7% of Americans talk seriously about God once a month. Now for Christians, we double that to a whopping 14%. So we're not doing well with this either. Um, But just let that sink in. Uh, This was from a book a, a guy was writing about the loss of any kind of religious language in our culture. Uh, learning to speak about God again, Jonathan Merritt. And um, just given those facts, it's going to be hard to fight against the current and to actually think about God and talk about God. And so we need a lot of help, and we get a lot of help, because in verse 6 it says, 
And I love this. Uh, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And I think to me that's the good news of the passage, that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Um, which I think means that, uh, that God knows it from the inside. Um, that, that God somehow knows the way a righteous human being has to live. In fact, God paved the trail to live that righteous way. Now, it's, it's, it's a great act of humility for God to even give us the book of Psalms. Think about that. Um, it, it, it implies we're so clueless as to how to speak to God that he's got to actually write down the words. Imagine a wife.